Hi, and welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Being a state Supreme Court justice is about much more than writing opinions on important cases. Justices are also responsible for overseeing the court system in their state. And part of that usually involves finding a passion and trying to affect change where they think it's needed. Whether that's the issue of children in foster care, studying the reasons behind an ever-growing prison population, or trying to keep their colleagues safe when job stress and substance abuse seem to be affecting their ability to best serve the public. The women were recently invited to speak at the Arkansas Bar Association's annual conference, where they spoke on this and a few other topics like technology in the court. So let's dive in. Here's Arkansas Supreme Court Justice Rhonda Wood. Welcome to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. We are thrilled to be presenting um, live from the Arkansas Bar Association meeting. This is the last um, episode of season one of the Lady Justice podcast, and we are wrapping it up where we started, which is in Arkansas. We came together, the four of us, um, as women justices during COVID, to try to talk about how we could outreach um, across the nation to really raise the conversation about state Supreme Courts, the importance of their work, um, and really a talk about women in the legal profession. And so we have done that over this past year. We have repeatedly said that women must step up as leaders in the legal profession, and we have encouraged women to follow their dreams as we've talked about state courts. Um, apparently, um, one of us decided to um, take that a little bit more literally. Um, and so Eva Guzman um, last week um, decided to um, walk the walk, not just talk the talk, and to follow her dreams further. And so she did resign from the Texas Supreme Court um, effective last Friday and is going to um, pursue other dreams. And so Eva, we wish you well, um, and our hearts and prayers and support go with you in your future endeavors. Um, so the bars meeting is reboot, reclaim, um, and recharge. And so we're gonna dial in further to what state courts roles are in these efforts. And so we're gonna start by talking about oral arguments. Um, and I think it's noticeable as we promote state Supreme Courts that our courts are way more advanced technologically than the United States Supreme Court. And the US Supreme Court, if those of you followed, switched up during the pandemic and began holding oral arguments by telephone. And if you listen to any, um, the Chief Justice um, a lot, sort of ran it by letting each counsel have so many minutes, and then they each justice asked questions in order of seniority. And I know our courts are light speed ahead of SCOTUS. Um, and in Arkansas, we've held video um, streaming of courts since 2010. But I wonder what format changes could our state Supreme Courts continue to make for the oral argument process? Um, and Eva, what about you? What do you think about justices asking questions in order of seniority? That's a great question. But first, let me say it's bittersweet. I have loved my time on with uh, my former colleagues and Lady Justice Women of the Court. If you had asked me whether I would um, <clears throat> ever have be on a podcast with other state Supreme Court justices, I would say, well, no, but it's been so much fun. And I hope that um, 
it has been beneficial to the public and the bar. So thank you all for, for the privilege of, of joining you. Oral argument. Well, we have learned a lot about argument in a new era. The Supreme Court of Texas began in March of 2020 to um, 20, yep, 2020. How can anyone forget 2020? Uh, so we immediately transitioned to virtual oral arguments, but we didn't transition to asking questions in any particular order. So I think in the beginning, there was a, a sense of, you know, are we going to be able to do this? Because what if we talk over each other? But I think, and I've always thought of oral argument as a conversation. The lawyers need to be able to pick up on cues from the justices' questions. As a justice, if you have an idea about how you think the case should come up, sometimes you use oral argument to ask, ask questions that further your view of the case. And so a very structured um, order of questioning, in my view, um, detracts a little bit from the conversation that we should be having at oral argument. And so we did not do that. We had a few times when judges spoke over each other. We're pretty good about deferring um, either an order of seniority with, you know, or whoever opened their mouth first, that's who gets to speak. And so we actually didn't have any major um, issues come up. And so there are arguments on both sides, but I think because it's a conversation, because it's a dialogue between counsel and the judges, and because you can learn so much from an organic process, I would not favor that, that particular change. But I do think there are ways that judges can discuss among themselves, amongst themselves, you know, what, what should we do when we both speak up at the same time? You know? um, I'll jump in on this question. Um, and first of all, I also want to thank the Arkansas Bar for, um, for having us. This is a lot of fun. And, it, and, and uh, join Rhonda and Beth in wishing um, Eva the best of everything. You, you, you make me proud. And I uh, would, would follow you into any foxhole and uh, am eager to stay in touch and keep up with you and support every single thing you do next. So it's been a pleasure working with you. Um, I, we, 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 we too moved to um, Zoom arguments right away um, in March of 2020 um, and just kind of muddled through in the beginning and we talked over one another and that didn't work great. And so we moved to, um, I would ask each justice to ask their questions kind of in order of seniority and, and switch it up um, by each case. Um, but I feel like we learned a lot in this process. Um, like Arkansas, we've been live streaming arguments from the courtroom for a long time, I think from 2004 or five. Um, so the public is always able to uh, tune in and watch what we're doing, whether we're in the courtroom or on the computer. Um, I think what we learned in, in COVID, in the pandemic, is, is at least for the intermediate appellate court, it turns out to be a big advantage to have an opportunity for Zoom arguments, especially in cases where lawyers are appointed um, and might not be able to afford to drive to a, an appellate court um, and do an argument. So particularly in um, indigent criminal appeals and in termination of parental rights where um, lawyers are not compensated for um, their time, 
um, they had much higher participation rates um, in Zoom arguments. And we did some surveying of the appellate bar um, about the, the Court of Appeals experiences. And we'll definitely be keeping a Zoom option going forward, um, especially for those cases where it would be otherwise um, difficult for, for, for attorneys to make those appearances. I still think in the for the Supreme Court arguments, I agree with Eva, it, it really is a conversation about the hard questions, right? That's what that's what the best oral arguments are. And I think those conversations are better in person. My first choice is gonna be in person whenever we have that option. But Again, even in our court, if there are reasons why a particular um, lawyer can't make it to Lansing, I love that we now have this tool. Um, and we also have you know, a hybrid option. We did our conference yesterday um, in a hybrid way. Four of us were in the conference room, three of us were not. And we had a, an owl camera in the middle of the table, which has a 360 degree view. And uh, the other three were on a big screen, um, and the hybrid is is a, is a nice option as well. I feel like we we learned a lot of new new skills and tools that we'll take with us into the future that will make um, the practice better for uh, for the lawyers and the litigants in particular. So, Beth, talking about um, since Bridget mentioned intermediate courts um, in West Virginia currently right now for Arkansas lawyers, they only have one um, appellate court but the legislature recently approved adding an intermediate court of appeals. How has the pandemic and your experience with using um, video, comp video oral arguments impacted how you're gonna roll out your intermediate um, court of appeals? Well, thank you and hello to everyone from West Virginia um, and, and Eva, we're just, it is bittersweet to do this last um, episode of season one, knowing that you have set your sights elsewhere, but we are all with you uh, as we always are on Twitter, um, because the four of us, uh, if, you, if you follow Justice Wood, you'll probably see that the other three of us uh, liking her stuff as we do with each other. Um, we think it's really important for to keep the conversation going about state courts on social media. And that's what we do. So Eva, we will be um, watching your Twitter as you as you step forward and um, be thinking of you. But anyway, on this topic, we have learned so much as as in the other states about how you can have court. And very briefly, as Rhonda said, we have a new intermediate court of appeals that will start uh, in a little over a year. But needless to say, we've already started planning for that court. Once the legislature uh, set it up, which our constitution gives them the right to do, it is our responsibility to, uh, to establish the rules and procedures. It is a court of pretty limited jurisdiction. It will only hear civil and certain domestic appeals. Um, it will not hear criminal and it will not hear our child and abuse and neglect docket. And those are our two largest dockets, actually, at the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia. So we are trying to figure out how to, whether, whether this intermediate court of appeals, which will consist of three judges, uh, will sit in a physical location, will travel among a couple of different places in West Virginia. West Virginia is like a lot of our other states. It's not easy to travel from one end to the other. Um, and it's burdensome for parties. It's burdensome for judges. Uh, so we don't know whether to to put them in more than one location or to serve our population or whether we put them on Zoom, frankly, or something like Zoom, like Teams, um, because 
One of our concerns, for example, and this is the kind of thing when the legislature decides something and says, okay, Supreme Court, you go ahead and implement it. Um, the trick, as we always say, can be in the details. And so we are observing, for example, that domestic appeals will now go directly from family court to the intermediate court of appeals and skip the trial courts where they used to stop before they came to us. And the, the fact is in these domestic cases, many folks are pro se. And if we put this intermediate court in Charleston, um, that could be four to five hours away for people who are representing themselves in these cases. And I don't think that's something that everybody anticipated. So I suspect if I had to predict, um, and there's going to be some kind of hybrid option, just like Bridget talked about, you know, there is nothing to replace in-person interaction and discussion of the important issues. But when we're talking about access to the courts and not discouraging people from pursuing their rights because they don't want to drive to a, a very far away location, um, I think we're going to have a lot of more, a lot more tools in our toolbox. And I'm pretty grateful for that. That's one of those silver linings, I think, that comes out of the pandemic. We, you know, it would have taken us 10 years probably to get this far based on uh, what we've accomplished just in 2020. So um, we're looking forward to that in West Virginia. More to come. Thanks, Beth. So one of the things that we're talking about in the bar meeting is about, you know, this reboot, recharge, reclaim. And I think all four of us have been very um, vocal about is that Supreme Court justices and Supreme Courts have to lead this sort of reforming of the justice system and sort of lead from the top. And, you know, it used to be, um, I think back when I was in law school that, you know, it used to be a lot of times the Supreme Court role was just to decide cases. Um, and, um, you know, we've been pretty vocal, all I think all four of us, that um, our job is more than that. Um, and so Bridget, what are your thoughts on that? It's such an important question. And I love that we can like talk just explicitly about the different roles we play. So we do have um, the, the function I think most people are familiar with in um, judges and justices in particular is our decision-making function. That's the one that the papers write about, right? That's the one that people understand. And I do think it's pretty important in our decision-making function to answer the questions that are brought to us, to be committed to precedent, to, um, uh, to, to make sure that the law is stable and predictable. And, um, um, and, and, and that's, you know, we're, we're governed by a set of expectations and norms and even ethics rules in our decision-making function that are really important. It's really important to public confidence in what we do that we, we play by those rules. But it, state Supreme Courts are also constitutionally charged with the administration of all the courts of the state, right? And that administrative hat that we wear um, requires something else from us because um, state courts is where most people um, go to get justice or, uh, or, or, or where they are uh, called in because someone wants a little justice from them. Um, and, uh, you know, I always say 95% of cases, criminal and civil, are decided in state courts, not federal courts. And an awful lot of those cases um, involve, as Beth was just talking about, people who don't have access to lawyers. They can't afford lawyers. Um, and they won't be able to afford lawyers. So they're managing really difficult situations on their own without lawyers. Um, 
And in our administrative oversight role, constitutional administrative oversight role, it's, it's incumbent upon us to make sure those courts work for all of those people, right? That those courts serve those communities in the best ways that they can. And so I always like to try and um, make sure people understand those different roles. And when we're wearing our administrative oversight hat, um, and we um, know that there are ways that the courts can serve the public better, um, we need to be leaders in making sure those, 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 those things happen. Um, if we leave it to uh, the other stakeholders, a very important voice is gonna be missing in the conversation, right? The judges know more about how things are happening in their courthouses and their courtrooms than uh, just about any other person at a policymaker's table. Um, so in that administrative oversight role, justices of, of state Supreme Courts, and my, in my view, even local judges in local communities have a really important role to play and a really important voice to add to those conversations. That's the top level answer. Eva, do you have anything you wanna add? So I, I agree with uh, what Bridget said. I would add that the unique role that, that judges have as guardians of the rule of law and the, um, the way that judges can affect systemic change. And that's through these collaborations that are uh, uniquely available to us as leaders in the judicial branch, particularly the state Supreme Court. And I think at, for example, the Children's Commission that I've been involved with, and, and I'll talk about that maybe a little bit more later if there's an opportunity, but collaboration is key and judges are in a unique role to build um, models that bring in stakeholders that ultimately you know, have th this, this systemic impact. And so I, I hope that, um, and I've seen it in my own career, 22 years on the bench, judges really rise up um, as leaders and really leaning in to that component that Bridget discussed or the administrative oversight responsibility. Judges are leaning in all over the country in ways that we had not seen even 10 years ago. And it's having a huge impact on our communities and on the trust that they have in our justice system. Thank you. And, and I'll add to that, that's a perfect, um, actually pivot to what I wanted to add to this conversation. And that is the trust and confidence in the soundness of the judiciary, which, you know, we are guardians of at the state Supreme Court level. And I come at this question with the unique perspective of having had the opportunity to completely rebuild that trusted confidence uh, in the court system. Um, the, the very short version of the story is that in um, 2018, our legislature impeached the entire Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, including me. Uh, I was acquitted at a trial in the Senate. We haven't done the podcast about this yet. Um, I don't know if I'm ready yet, but I learned a lot out of the situation. And the bottom line, I was um, became chief two months after um, the conclusion of my trial in the Senate. Um, and we set about the work in 2019 of restoring public trust and confidence in the judiciary. When I arrived at the court, the culture was broken. The justices were not cognizant of this role. We're not, we're, we're cloistered, we're not paying attention, we're not accountable to the public, 
we're not, you know, really paying attention to things that we've talked about so much on this podcast. You know, we have such a um, responsibility and such trust in what we do. And um, we learned that that is a sacred trust and that, um, but that you can rebuild it. And that if you exert that leadership as a judge, still keeping entirely separate your you know, judge role, your decision-making role, which, you know, we can't talk about the cases and we can't discuss our deliberations and, but we can talk and we should talk a lot about the, the administration of the, of the judiciary. And so that's what we've done since 2019. We are out and we are talking about it. We are transparent. We, you know, and, and accountable and all of the things, um, uh, that are really important in the administration of state courts. And, you know, my, my little story is just one of how um, not only do we have the opportunity, but if we don't take the opportunity, um, you can really let things go. Uh, and unfortunately in West Virginia, it went to a crisis level, uh, but we've turned things around and it's come right back. Yeah. And I, I agree. I think that, you know, a lot of times when you're running for um, the Supreme court, that there's a lot of conversation about cases and the decision-making on cases. And there's not a lot of focus on the administrative side. And I think lawyers, um, you know, realize that one decision, um, a rule change um, at the Supreme Court level can have just monumental effect on the practice of law and on litigants. And so those kind of decisions have to be just very deliberate, very well thought out. And um, we can't just keep doing things business as usual. And so we have to keep evolving and changing and improving. And, you know, we have an administrative office of the court here, even though we are decentralized court system, but um, I'm sure I drive everybody batty because um, I'm constantly, they'll say, well, that's how it's been done. Well, why? You know, I'm always asking why, <laughs> you know, um, and sometimes they're like, well, because, and I was like, well, that's not a good enough reason, you know, um, let's figure out why, you know, um, and so I think that we have to just keep moving it forward and improving the system, improving the system, um, because there's not a perfect system, um, and that's our job. Um, our job is to keep making it better and better and better for the litigants um, of the state. You know, I know, Eva, you mentioned um, the Children's Commission of Texas, um, and I think that's a great example of how you've brought stakeholders in um, to sort of improve the justice system. So could you explain that a little bit more? Certainly. And I know um, we've had the, the great uh, pleasure and privilege of hosting Arkansas in Texas in connection with our work on, on the Children's Commission. But in 2007, uh, former Justice Harriet O'Neill identified, along with another set of judicial leaders, the need to bring stakeholders around one table to discuss how to improve uh, outcomes for children in the child welfare system. So if you look at Texas on any given day, there's almost 30,000 children who won't go home that night. They're somewhere in the child welfare system. So you had the department uh, not speaking to the judges, not communicating with the, the doctors that treat these children, the parents of the children, the ad litems, and all of the different stakeholders. So the goal was to bring them together and then to work on policy 
to, to improve those outcomes, I took the commission over in 2010. And if you look on my Twitter, which I may be getting a new Twitter account soon, but if you look on my existing Twitter, you will be able to find uh, many tweets about the work of the Children's Commission. We have um, worked on educational outcomes. We brought 100 um, stakeholders, leaders from around Texas, and put together the Texas Blueprint. And what you had was a system where children were, they are children in the foster care system and the child welfare system change schools a lot. And now each school in Texas has a coordinator that ensures that when that child comes in, there's an attempt at some um, stability for the child. Uh, psychotropic medications, there were no, um, there was no legislation that was really meaningful around that issue. Thanks to the, the folks on the commission that work on policy, I do not, there, there exists that now. So it's, it's been um, a real opportunity to work with leaders, to work with judicial leaders and to see change happening. We have so much more to do. And if I'll miss anything about my work, it's that and access to justice. I miss the jurisprudence, but there are brilliant minds around the table who will continue that work. And there are, there are people who will continue this work, but personally, I will miss it very much. And you asked maybe about trauma-informed care. And if you go to the Texas Children's Commission website, we actually formed a statewide collaborative on trauma-informed care. And, and what that, at, at bottom, it's, you know, when we um, address children or parents who have been through um, a lot we may say, well, what's wrong with them? But we want to ask, what happened to you? And that's the, the premise behind trauma-informed care. Um, realize how widespread it is. Realize, you know, and understand the paths for recovery. Recognize the signs and symptoms and integrate them into our courtrooms, into our protocols, into our plans for these families. So there's a ton of information on the Children's Commission website, we have human trafficking reports, we have trauma-informed care, psychotropic medication, education. We hope that the resources that we've made available are helpful to um, parents and to leaders. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. I'm very passionate about it, in case you can't tell. <laughs> as you should be, as you should be. So for Arkansas lawyers, I wanted to um, let you guys know that um, in part, I credit Eva and the Texas Children's Commission for um, our court's ability to quickly adapt to Zoom during the pandemic. And so I don't even know how much Eva knows the story, um, but Arkansas lawyers, I think you should know that. Um, so I chair our Children's Commission on Children, Youth and Families. And um, that was probably the first connection I had with Eva. Um, is because she was their chair. And this is, I think, why relationships matter between justices on other states as we learn from each other. And I saw that Texas um, was allowing video conference with juveniles in juvenile court. Um, and so I put together a team and we went to Austin and visited Eva and saw how they were using video conference for juveniles to appear. And um, we came back and we um, put together a plan of action and developed all the guides, the record guides, the judge guides, the bench books, all the things, put it together. 
and this was January, 2020, we decided on a platform and we decided to use this company that we didn't know of called Zoom. And we entered into a pilot relationship with them, our administrative office of the court. And so Marty Sullivan, our director and Tim Holtoff, our IT and, and myself, we got on with Zoom, with Zoom. And we said, can you cut us a break? The Arkansas court system, a break. We want to do this pilot program. We want juveniles in foster care not to have to be transported across the state to attend juvenile hearings. We want them to appear by video. And they said, well, how many courts are going to get online? And I said, okay, we've got two pilot courts, maybe at the most 30 courts in Arkansas. I can get online in a year um, if this takes off. So they cut Arkansas a deal and um, we kind of finagled back and forth $2,000. Okay. $2,000. And, um, and so we entered that agreement and signed it um, January, the end of January, 2020. Um, we had everything in place March 1st, 2020 for the pilot courts to start um, April 1st and the pandemic hit. Um, well, the agreement did not have a limitation on courts. It was just our oral word on how many we thought we'd have up. So Arkansas had um, all the Zoom in place, all the guides, everything ready, and a license for all of our courts with Zoom for $2,000 that we rolled out. Um, so other states were telling us that they were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get licenses. And so when the pandemic hit, we just told all of our courts, we're like, you want license? Here you go. Here's all the guides. Here's your license. Um, and we we're ready to go. And so Eva, you didn't know you got some of the credit for Arkansas um, because of the vision of the commission there um, that our commission decided to go forward with. So Arkansas lawyers um, owe you some gratitude. <laughs> Um, and so um, transitioning over, um, I wanted Bridget, you to talk a little bit, because I think Arkansas has a ways to go in this area. You've been a leader in bill reform um, and sentencing reform and help lead the task force in Michigan. And this is of a concern to Arkansas lawyers. And at some point, our court is going to have to take a lead on this. Can you talk about your efforts in Michigan? Yeah, and I want to start. Well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity. But I want to start by saying um, I was one, just one of a number of people who worked together on these efforts. And I'm kind of proud of Michigan because this, um, I did co-chair the governor's task force on jail and pretrial reform, uh, but it was a bipartisan, um, all three branch, um, at, together with the sheriffs and the county commissions, because that's kind of all the stakeholders that. Uh, are involved in policy setting and funding for, um, for jails. Uh, we, we together all entered in agreement with the Pew Charitable Trust, um, which then staffed us to collect statewide data um, and work on a task force process to come up with some pretty innovative reforms. Michigan's county jail population is not different from lots of other states, so you're probably right. I don't know Arkansas's numbers, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if you, you haven't seen the same thing in Arkansas that basically every other state has seen, which is over the last um, 30 years, jail populations have really grown dramatically um, while crime was at a 50-year low. And um, no, at least in Michigan, we didn't have any statewide data to, to understand exactly what was driving those jail populations. Um, and so the first step was 
gathering some statewide data. Michigan has 83 counties, 81 county jails, and 81 data collection uh, uh, processes. So none of them talk to one another, and um, that's where Pew came in. And we, we um, in this bipartisan, really interesting group of uh, task force members, um, had uh, looked at the data from around the state um, and tried to understand uh, the best practices from around the country about jail policy. Um, and then we heard from the public around the state. We, 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 we heard from the public in Detroit and Grand Rapids and Lansing and Traverse City. And um, there was really overwhelming interest in, um, in, in thinking about the ways um, our jail policies were really affecting communities. One of the things we learned in Michigan, which I think is true lots of places, is the one of the primary reasons people were ending up in county jails was for driving with a suspended license. Um, and uh, that's true in lots of places. And in, in some counties, it was the number one reason. Wayne County, where Detroit is, it was the number one reason people were sitting in the county jail. And that's weird because Michigan is a, we, we drive here. We are about our cars. We do not do public transportation. We like to get in our cars and go places. Um, and yet there are so many people who had lost their driver's licenses because we were, we were suspending driver's licenses for things that had nothing to do with driving safety for, for a long time. Um, and yet all those folks still had to get to work. They still had to get to work and pay their bills and pay their child support and take care of their families and pay their taxes. And so then they get arrested for driving with a suspended license. And the way the statutes were written, the police officers had no discretion. They have to take you to jail. Um, so we were not, so, so, so policies that, that I think were all, I, I am positive, in fact, were all enacted with the best of intentions. Um, we learned after some experience with them, we're just growing our jail populations and, and, and not making our communities safer. In fact, probably making them less safe if people were losing their jobs and, and not able to take care of their families. Um, I, I'm really proud that at the end of this process, we delivered um, a set of recommendations um, to the legislative leadership, which then through a pandemic made a priority of getting them passed the Speaker of the House, the, uh, he, the, the, the Speaker of the House from last session and the Senate Majority Leader showed real, real um, determination and got um, think 20 bills to the governor's desk by December and she signed them all. And it was a true bipartisan um, multi-stakeholder success story. But my, this will take me back to my top line answer to your earlier question, Rhonda, which is I think having me at the table and I also, we also had a, a, a circuit judge and a district court judge um, was a really important part of the conversation because the judges are aware of, of, of part of this story that nobody else is aware of, right? And so um, having us at the table was pretty important to um, getting to a place where we all agreed um, we could take Michigan forward. I think I'm slated to, to comment here. And let me just, um, because I'm conscious of our time, I won't say much because um, Bridget, you have been such a luminary in this area and uh, even Rhonda with your children's commissions, I think what you've heard in this discussion really puts a fine point on the fact that just because we have three branches of government and that separation of powers is very important to our form of government, it doesn't mean that you can't talk to one another and that you can't accomplish really important things for the state. And, and as Bridget said, and Eva, you know, we have a very special point of view in the courts 
um, that sometimes legislators don't appreciate. And legislators obviously have a different point of view than we do. And when we can work together in a way that's not, you know, it's easy to have, you know, politics and sort of, you know, the, the tough things we have to do together, like budget and all of that, um, hurt relationships when we can do really important things working together. Um, we all really are trying to get to the same place for the most part, maybe different paths, but certainly um, mostly the same result. And it's it's really a great opportunity for state Supreme Court justices to get involved in these kinds of initiatives um, in order sometimes to bring people together. Beth, um, you have also um, really led in the area of judicial wellness and wellness in the legal profession. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? The Arkansas Bar, by the way, um, if, if you're not familiar, has really sort of renewed its, its focus on this, and I'm really proud of the Bar Association for their efforts. But do you want to tell us sort of your thoughts on that? Sure. And, and thanks for letting me talk a little bit about this. Um, and, you know, thank you to the three of you for letting us do an entire podcast on the topic of well-being and law. For those of you uh, in Arkansas who haven't listened yet, we've done a podcast and it really is uh, A to Z on our thoughts on this issue. But um, just in a brief summary, um, you know, going all the way back to 2016, when the first study showed real data that we have issues in the legal profession with substance abuse and mental ill health. Um, to the 2017 report of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing, there, going all the way back to, in, to present, there's a, there's a real emphasis on what we have to do to change the culture of the legal profession, to, to recognize that we've created in some ways, starting in law schools, um, a situation where folks are not encouraged to care for themselves, to make sure that they take care of their own competence before they're helping their clients and where they aren't cognizant of their responsibilities to each other. And, you know, this has all come around um, through the work of state lawyer, judges and lawyers assistance programs, lawyers helping lawyers programs, all of that. But I guess the point for our conversation today is when you want to change a culture, when you recognize there is an issue, you have to start at the top. And we have a unique situation in state Supreme Courts where we are charged with the supervision of the legal profession. And so it had to, this all has started in states with the involvement of Supreme Court justices. And I've had the the honor to kind of be the well-being person, um, or at least the advocate in West Virginia. And I'll tell a very brief story about how I got there. And that is when I, in my prior life, I worked uh, for a little while in-house with a hospital system as the labor and employment lawyer. And I kept hearing about the physician's help program, working in a hospital, you're dealing with physicians a lot. And they kept talking about this, uh, this doctor named Dr. Brad Hall, who was in charge of the Physicians Helping Physicians program, which is their program for physicians with impairments or mental health issues. And they would, the physicians would speak with such conviction about, well, Dr. Brad Hall can help them. Dr. Brad Hall can do this for them, you know, send them and, and he'll take care of them. And I can't, and I found myself saying, well, why doesn't the legal profession have a Dr. Brad Hall? Who, who is taking care of us? And that's how I got started caring about this because we do have a responsibility uh, to look out for each other. Um, we have an adversarial pro profession. There's lots of reasons we are the way we are. 
but it can change. And uh, it's been really important to me. And we've evolved in West Virginia. When I took the, when I, when I took office in 2017, our lawyers assistant program was not very well funded. And one of the Supreme Court justices referred to it as the drunk lawyers program. Uh, fast forward to now, it is funded, has appropriate staff, and is also serving judges, law students, and also family members of folks in the legal profession. Um, so state by state, we are trying to be more attentive to these issues, and I'm happy to be someone who's not afraid to speak up about it. And I'm once again grateful to my friends uh, for letting me talk about it so much, because I think it is really important. Thanks, Beth. So um, we are going to move into what, if any of you listen to our podcast, is called a lightning round. We ask quick questions and we answer um, by um, order of state. So it's going to be, I guess I'm going first, then Bridget, then Eva, then Beth. And we're going to give really short answers to them. Um, And um, so the first question, and this lets you get to know us a little better, um, is if there was a fire in your chambers, what is the one thing that you would grab first as you ran out of the building and I will answer and it is my iPad. So I am a tech. Um, I will just admit it. There are more valuable things in my office, but I would just panic because my iPad has my life, all my briefs, notes, everything on there. So um, I would grab my iPad and the rest of it could burn. So um, Bridget. I, I, so I wish I could say this faster, but I I'll, I'll try and speak quickly because it's a lightning round, but um, I have this um, framed set of photographs in my office that when I was first elected to the court, my um, students at the University of Michigan Law School in the Michigan Innocence Clinic, which I was running, made for me. And it's a photo of each of the clients that that I, w- that I was responsible for exonerating of me and them. And then they got each of those clients to write a note to me about the exoneration. And it's all in one photo. And I would I, that's what I would grab on my way up. And for me, I have working mom guilt. My daughter is a grown lawyer and I still keep her artwork from seven, you know, kindergarten in my office. So I would grab it and run. And that's the first thing I packed on the way out. (laughs) And so I won't, I won't tell the whole story, but um, my dad passed away in 2009 and I got to have his Mont Blanc pen. And so I keep that in my desk and I use it to edit uh, opinions. Uh, when I'm writing, when I'm using paper. And so I would grab his pen and run for it. And I really appreciate all of you making me feel really um, shallow. And I know my sister, all, my, all, my family is going to say, thanks mom for not grabbing anything sentimental. By grabbing do, you want, do you want to record another answer? <laughs> all right. So the next question is favorite law school class and mine is civil procedure. And that will just explain a lot about my decisions. Um, I, are you the only person who would give that answer? Maybe um, uh, Ruth Ginsburg would have, but um, my, my favorite class was a, was a seminar called Child, Parent, and State, and it was about um, the constitutional relationships between parents and their kids. And my favorite is contracts. I'm still memorized. The law has outgrown its primitive stage of formalism, where the precise word is a sovereign talisman and every slip was fatal, blah, blah, blah. So I love contracts. <laughs> And uh, for me, the, the, the subject matter was great, but I love civil procedure because we had a really interesting professor. And as you uh, professors know, sometimes it's all about the professor. And now I know why we're friends. Um, okay, so um, the next question is Oxford comma, yes or no, and I'm a yes. 
So I'm a yes, but I would I will add that there has to be some nuance, right? Because you can always find an example where using it actually undermines your meaning. So I, but I, but absolutely, I'm on team yes, team Oxford comma. Team yes, I say yes usually because not always, but usually. Oh, we're such good um, judges. We never want to be pinned in. All right. So how do you read appellate briefs? Do you read them on paper, desktop, tablet? Um, so I've already disclosed, I think. I read mine on an iPad. I read on anything electronic. I read on computers, iPads, um, big screens, small screens, all screens, no paper. I read on the iPad, but if it was mine and I was writing it, I would print it and mark it up. But I'd start on the iPad. And, and I had to work my way into that. In the beginning, I thought I needed paper. I didn't. And uh, I am paperless um, as well. So it's always on a screen. Okay. And then um, I know Arkansas lawyers may not all be familiar with him, but Judge Dillard, who is on the Georgia Court of Appeals, has actually by Twitter asked us to answer this question, which is word or word perfect. And I am word, 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 word. Um, the court was word perfect when I arrived and, um, I'm happy to say it is converted to word. Honestly, is there anyone besides Judge Dillard who uses word perfect? I don't even know. I, I mean, I, I know he's mocking himself by having us talk about this, but come on, man, we love you, but we have to teach you the benefits of word. And I love my former chief, um, Nathan Heck, but yes, there is someone besides Judge Dillard that loves Word Perfect, and that is Nathan Heck, Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court. But I love Word and Word. Let me shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> I, I didn't even know they were still making Word Perfect until uh, Judge Dillard started talking about it on Twitter. So um, we, we need to bring him out of the 80s. Come on, man. So um, for Arkansas lawyers, I'll tell you, so some of you know Sue Newberry, who works in the criminal division at the Supreme Court, has been at the court for over 40 years, and she used WordPerfect, and I was able to get Sue Newberry to convert to Word, um, and she is thrilled. She actually will call me up and say, did you know there's like a little video, like you hit help, and you ask it what you want, and then you hit it, and it plays a video. Um, she's just thrilled with Word. And so 40 years at the Supreme Court using Word Perfect, and she is now a convert, um, Arkansas lawyers. So um, with that, I think it's a wrap for Lady Justice Women of the Court for our podcast. Um, it has been my honor to get to introduce all of you to the Arkansas Bar Association Thank you so much to the Arkansas Bar Association for letting me share my amazing, fabulous friends with you. And I hope you've learned um, how wonderful other state Supreme Court justices are around the country. And for Beth, Bridget, and Eva, um, you have meant the world to me during COVID and, um, and warmed my heart in ways that I never imagined when we started this. And when I sent you a message saying, do you want to do a podcast? And then you all said yes immediately. Um, we didn't know what we were getting into, but um, thank you from the bottom of my heart. And um, I just um, value you so much. So. Likewise. Same. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. If you find this podcast educational, we would so appreciate you sharing it and helping us grow. Visit our website, ladyjusticepod.com 
To listen to past episodes, find links to our social media, or send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. The opinions expressed on this program are the justices alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. We'll be back with season two in September. Until then.